0: Welcome to Dreaming of canadals. You may be surprised to learn that homelessness can take many forms. It's not just the people you see living on the streets. Some homeless people live in shelters and in other types of group homes far from the public eye, while others camouflage their state by living in cars, or in short-term housing, such as motels. I've experienced just about every type of homelessness over the years, including some time spent at a Christian men's home in the middle of the San Bernardino National Forest, where I was a virtual prisoner. While no homelessness is good, the best I've experienced were in the so-called vacation rentals I started staying at in the fall of two thousand nineteen when I began earning around a thousand dollars a month as a freelance writer. A thousand dollars a month may not seem like a lot of money, and it really isn't, but it was enough to temporarily put a roof over my head. These rentals, which were about half the price of the cheapest motels. ...were certainly better than sleeping in the desert, but they were far from perfect. They were usually group homes, not that different from homeless shelters, apart from not being free. Most of the people I shared these places with were not there on vacation. They were people much like me, living on the edge of ruin... We lived like characters out of an unfilmed reality show and I was constantly moving from one to another as well as from one city to the next with my backpack of belongings. But they gave me not just a roof but also a bed and a bathroom and a modicum of self-respect. Their biggest problem was their lack of permanency. To keep paying for them, I had to keep earning a $1,000 a month as a writer, which became difficult after the state of California enacted a law at the beginning of 2020 called AB5, which effectively banned freelancing for those who lived in the state. The point of the law was to force Uber and Lyft to hire their drivers as employees. But these companies and other large ones fought the law. It was mostly small companies, like the ones I was working with, that complied with it, not by hiring their freelancers, but by getting rid of them. In a very short period of time, I lost a low-paying but nearly full-time writing gig, and the content mill that I had been working at for years banned me and everyone else who lived in California. Along with this came a Damocles-like sword hanging over my head, which represented the inevitability that I would return to both the desert and its streets. I would actually be in even worse shape than before, as I wouldn't even have a subsistence income to rely on. Because of this, a gloom set in, and I became so paralyzed by it that I spent most of my days lying in bed doing nothing but waiting for the sword to fall. This gloom wasn't that different from what Herman, the hero of my novel, experienced after he reluctantly agreed to help Klaus with his murder investigation. Herman found himself staring into a mirror in the gendarmerie closet as he put on a suit that was way too big for his emaciated frame while realizing how clownish he looked and how impossible his situation was, he stopped. He stopped with both the suit and the absurdity of the situation. With rising anger, he further called out Klaus's name, believing that the humiliation he was feeling had made him no longer complicit in whatever would come next. Yes, Klaus uttered from the other side of the door, with a voice so weary that it was begging for rest. I've changed my mind, Herman growled. I want... He couldn't finish this thought, as he saw something that broke his concentration. He saw Anna... He saw her not in the mirror or in the closet or even in his imagination. He saw her in a different place and time, in a memory, which took him back to an early evening in his old apartment on Elishka Krasnohorska Street in Yosefov. He had a pretty good idea as to when this was. He knew that it must have been not long after the Nazis had closed Anna's art gallery, as all her unsold paintings were standing on easels in their living room, much like a bunch of huddled urchins. This was where they had been ever since the Reich had found her work to be a form of degenerative art, which my grandfather said they applied inconsistently, and only when purposes suited them, such as when punishing the wife of a prominent Jew. In this memory Herman was reliving, Anna was staring at her paintings, much as she had of late, from her rocking chair a few steps away. She once told my grandfather that she could see her whole life's arc in her works from her carefree student days to her search for some greater purpose as she approached midlife, all the way to the despair of the occupation. The hermit told me that seeing her stare caused him to extrapolate upon this. He believed that she also saw herself as a piece of art, one that would never be fully realized or completed. Herman stared at her paintings, too, and he noticed how her subjects had grown darker in recent years. Her early works, while not exactly joyous, had expressed at least a promise of joy and all the hope that accompanied it. But her newer ones expressed only the inevitability of disappointment and ruin. This was especially true OF HER LATEST PAINTING, WHICH DEPICTED THE BUILDINGS IN THEIR NEIGHBORHOOD LEANING OVER EACH OTHER IN THE DEAD OF NIGHT, LOOKING AS IF THEY WERE ABOUT TO COLLAPSE ON TOP OF EACH OTHER, WITH THEIR APARTMENT BUILDING IN THE VERY CENTER OF THIS. SUDDENLY, BOTH THEIR STARING WAS INTERRUPTED. THIS HAPPENED WHEN AN ENVELOPE CAME SLIDING UNDER THEIR FRONT DOOR. Herman crept over to this, and with some reluctance he picked it up and opened it, and he found an official-looking letter inside it, along with an abundance of stars made from cheap yellow cloth. Before he could even finish reading the letter, Anna grabbed it and the stars from him and read the letter herself. This led her to collect his coats from the nearby closet, and his suit jackets from the bedroom a short distance away. "'I won't do it,' he called out to her from outside the bedroom, as he balled up the envelope and threw it onto the floor. "'I won't wear them.' Anna didn't respond to any of this, not even to his affirmation of his intentions in check which was a language he only spoke to her when he was dead serious about something and wanted her to know it. She just returned from the bedroom with the garments and her sewing kit, along with a smile that somehow muted all his fury. She returned to her rocking chair, too, and she began working. She even looked a little relieved probably because she could finally take her eyes away from all her misery. But the same couldn't be said of my grandfather. Watching his wife sew the stars into his clothes caused his fury to come roaring back and then some. This fury was so out of character for him, but not without reason as it was bad enough that he had to suffer the humiliation of the stars. But this was made even worse by making her part of it. His fury built and built, and when it finally exploded, he stormed up to her and grabbed a letter from the chair's armrest before ripping it into shreds. He grabbed his clothes from her as well. I'll dare them to shoot me, he growled. I'll go down to the street right now and dare them. Calmly, she stood up and shook her head in a slow but continuous manner. This was something she did, not when she wanted to express disapproval of his actions, but when she wanted him to do so himself. They're just going to shoot me anyway, he insisted, while wanting to cry, but not being able to do so. But not now, she insisted back, before grabbing all the clothes from him. Until then, they're still now. Again she sat in the rocking chair, and again she began sewing. She even looked happy, and my grandfather couldn't understand why. He told me that it was one of the few mysteries that he could never solve. But I've since learned the source of Anna's joy. It happened after I pulled myself together long enough to take a trip to Prague. During this, I visited the National Gallery which is one of the largest art museums in Central Europe. In a far-off corner of the building, I found a pair of honest paintings, and I spent hours staring at them while trying to come up with some clues as to what led her to the decision that would so alter my grandfather's life. I stared at them for so long that a member of the museum's staff noticed and approached me, curious as to why I was so interested in such an obscure artist. I told him, and I asked him what he knew about her. No one in the museum knows anything about her, he answered, other than that she was clearly talented but I could give you the phone number of the woman who donated the paintings, Viera Davidova. She is one of the museum's benefactors. With great excitement, I got the number and called the woman right away. She agreed to meet me the following day in a restaurant on top of the building where she had an office in the Newtown section of the city. Known as the Dancing House, this building is unlike any in the world, with strikingly curved pillars that make it seem as if one of the structure's towers were dancing with the other. The restaurant there also provides a view of the Viltava River that is so stunning that it was difficult for me to concentrate on what Vera had to say at least until the aging woman murmured, I knew Anna a little. You did? I muttered with lots of surprise. My mother was her patron until, until we had to leave the city. These words led me to glance at the woman's forearm, and I saw the same kind of number that was tattooed on my grandpa. "'Did you know my grandfather?' I breathlessly asked. "'Not really,' she answered. "'I knew who he was. "'Everyone at the Riesenstadt did. "'But he mostly kept to himself, understandably, "'and we never approached him, "'as my mother didn't want to do anything "'that would make him relive what happened.' I'm trying to better understand, Anna, I said to Vera, and what my grandfather meant to her. She loved him very much, the woman told me. Whenever she visited us, she talked more about him than she did of herself or her work. It was almost as if he were her work, and maybe he was. It's because of this I think Anna was happy that early evening. I think she realized that her life's arc was not in her paintings after all. They were nothing but representations of it. While the real thing was found in the man who was standing beside her, the man who had stood beside her through all of it, it was through him that she had completed herself and she must have felt that she'd always feel complete, just as long as he continued to stand beside her. What she told him next only confirms this. You must promise me, she said while continuing her sewing, you must promise that you'll always wait through whatever now there is even if it's to last only seconds more. I won't, he uttered. But Anna just smiled once again, and this time Herman knew why. It was because she had heard the promise in his voice, and she knew that he had heard it as well. You've changed your mind about what? Klaus growled, causing the closet and the mirror and all of Hermann's current reality to return. Though that didn't mean that Anna had gone, or that his memories of her had left him. They were still with him, and so was the promise that he had made to her. Just a few hours earlier, when he agreed to Klaus's demands, Herman thought that he could still change his mind, that he could do so at any time he found some reasonable excuse. But he saw now that this was nothing but a lie that he had told himself. He saw now that he could have no complicity in his death, no matter what excuses he made. Anna had seen to this. She had made sure that he would live for as long as he could, He would even pursue the murderer of Nazis if it meant living for a few seconds more. Herman wouldn't be the only one who'd continue on. His story helped give me the motivation to get off that bed and do whatever I could to prevent the sword from falling upon me. And this was no small thing. Thank you for listening to Dreaming of Kinnadals.